The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to John. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, the home of Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. There they gave him a dinner. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those at the table with him. Mary took a pound of costly perfume made of pure nard, anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped them with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, the one who was about to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He kept the common purse and used to steal what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone. She bought it so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. The Gospel of the Lord. name of the true and living God. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. So right now at Yale University, the very most popular class that is offered is a course by a professor named Lori Santos in which she teaches about happiness. Lori Santos is from the psychology department and she also is involved with uh, working with undergraduates very closely. And over the recent years, she realized how completely stressed out so many students are that she decided to craft a course that would be not only academic in which people learn the psychology behind the art of happiness and well-being, but also that the students would get practical assignments in which they could practice things that actually lead toward more well-being and more happiness in their lives. And interestingly, it's free course now. Anybody can take it on, on the internet. It's been seen of such value that um, you know, military as well as secular organizations have actually occasionally made it a requirement that many people do take it so that they could live a little bit better and be supported and have less stress. And it is the most popular class I've I believe that one out of every four undergraduates who graduates from Yale has taken this course. So one of the concepts that she has shared uh, from her learning is the concept of how we view time. There are two primary ways. One is called time famine. So time famine is that experience when you look at your to-do list 
and you see all the things and you say to yourself, there is no amount, I do not have the time to get these things done. There's no way I will be able to achieve what I need to do. And that causes great stress. When you're time famished, according to one of the studies that she cites, you feel as much stress as if you were experiencing unemployment. And the opposite is called time affluence. With time affluence, you feel that you do have enough time. Interestingly, it's not actually about, <clears throat> it's not actually about whether or not you have time, it's about whether you feel you have the time or not. And I actually recommend this to you. I, learning about this, decided to try it out because I, I'm probably the only person here, but sometimes I feel time famished. Sometimes I look at my to-do list and just go, oh, and I think there's no way it's going to get done. Even though somehow, when you look back on those to-do lists that oppress you, somehow it does get done one way or another. I don't know how that happens. But I've decided to try this out practically and decided to take, from time to time, I will take the top two or three items and pretend nothing else exists. And I'll tell myself, I have enough time to do these things. And you know what ends up happening is then you have more focus. You have more joy in those tasks that you're doing. And you end up being more productive and you get down your list much faster becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Well, I believe that Mary of Bethany, who we just heard about in the Gospel reading, perhaps is the patron saint of time affluence. We've heard about her in other places in the New Testament. In the Gospel of Luke, she and Martha show up when Jesus goes and visits them in their home. And there's this famous scene where uh, Martha is in the kitchen, preparing, getting everything ready, and Mary is not in the kitchen. She's not doing any work, but she's just sitting at Jesus' feet. And then famously, Martha complains and says to the Lord, can't you say something to my sister? Can't you tell her there's work to be done and I'm doing it all? And Jesus' response, he says, Martha, Martha, Mary has chosen the better part choosing to be right there, to be present. I think that is a, a word for us, especially in this town, which is a place of doing, perhaps of being a bit frantic in all the, the doing that we are swept up in. Uh, I know of a church that actually has a fellowship group where they call themselves the Marthas. These are the people who make sure things happen. The people who you find in the kitchen making sure things go well. And to their credit, they know to point a little fun at themselves, calling themselves the Marthas. I think that we may be in a city full of Marthas. And yet, we are invited not just to be doers, but to practice the art of presence. Learning how to not just be human doings, but be human beings. And to just let ourselves be in that moment, whatever the moment might be. And so Martha and Mary, again, we hear about them just one chapter before what we heard today in chapter 11 in the Gospel of John. We hear about their brother Lazarus, who has fallen ill and is at the point of death. And ultimately he dies. And the word is sent out to Jesus 
Interestingly, Mary and Martha know something about Jesus. They know that even though Lazarus is dying, that he can do something, that he can help. So the word comes to Jesus, and um, do you remember what happens next? That the disciples actually tell Jesus not to go. They tell him, if you go down to Bethany, if you go into that region, they're going to stone you to death. You cannot go and help Lazarus, even though you want to, because you might die. And of course, Jesus won't hear it. And he's determined he's going to go, he's willing to give his life to risk mortal death for the sake of the life of another person. And then things turn around, and I always like to point out uh, poor Thomas, you know, Thomas the disciple who has the nickname Doubting Thomas. Well, Thomas is the one who actually says, let us go with him so that we may die with him as well. He could have been called Thomas the Courageous. And so they do, and when Jesus arrives, Lazarus has already died. And he is definitely dead. It's been three days. And the King James has the very uh, memorable line that he stinketh. But Jesus is able to revive him and he steps out of the tomb alive and free to live. And here in this story, we hear that Lazarus, apparently right after this had happened, he is there sitting at the table with them alive. And so you see, in this seemingly fairly innocent and simple story, there are layers and layers. In fact, there is death all around. There's death before and behind and above and below. And even more than that, by bringing Lazarus back to life, the very next thing that the Gospel of John says is that the temple authorities were looking for an excuse to have Jesus killed. That was the excuse that they were able to use. So by giving him the gift of life, Jesus signed his own death. And somehow, Mary seems to know. We don't know for sure if she knows exactly what she's doing, but when she, very characteristic of her, decides to break open a bottle of this costly ointment, this nard perfume, and to anoint his feet with it so that the whole home smells of this beautiful smell, this extravagant and beautiful act. Maybe she realizes it or maybe she doesn't, but she is anointing his body, preparing him for his own burial. It's six days before the Passover, which means Jesus is going to die within a week. There's death all around. We have a tradition recently here at this church where during the final blessing of almost every service, we say the words, life is short. And there is a parishioner here who I know takes issue with those words. Um, I have learned about this from her mother. She's 10 years old. And she has shared, as I understand it, the way it's been relayed by her mother to me, that in her view, life isn't short. There are many years that in which for us to live and isn't it interesting? You can look at it in either way. But no matter what, the point remains. We don't know what tomorrow will bring. All we know is that we have the gift of now. The gift of today. And today we have the opportunity to live 
in a way that matters, in a way that blesses, in a way that brings about the kingdom of God and God's justice as well as God's mercy. And so much as we can, we have this time to be like Mary. The theologian and writer and teacher Richard Rohr, who is Catholic, has pointed out in the way that the church has viewed the Eucharist that over the centuries there have been big fights over the proper way of exactly understanding how Jesus can be present in, the body, in body and blood, in the bread and in the wine. And how can that be? And his, his point is that we are not to be consuming ourselves with trying to understand what is ultimately a mystery because really our job is to be present to it. Not to understand the mystery, but be present to the mystery that comes as a gift. To be like Mary. To choose what is best. And to offer the Lord what is the greatest treasure of all, which is us. Jesus has offered the gift of his presence, and this is our chance to return the gift with our own. Because both in the story and in life, death is all around, but more importantly, right at the center of it all, there is life being lived. The the life that the Gospel of John points out is the light of the world, is before us, is beckoning us to be like Mary and to be present to it.